If you have your Bibles, please go to Genesis 5. And for those on the screen, I'm going to skip the first two slides as we introduce things. So just kind of have that in mind. When I came to Genesis 5, I'm like, that's a long passage. There's 32 verses. We're going to go through every single one of them. I'm like, what's in this passage? It's not much. And then I started looking closer. I'm like, oh, wow, this passage is pretty fascinating. And we'll hit a lot of different things. And so just kind of, I don't know, put on your pew seat belts and hold on tight. But before we get started, I want to put this foundational concept in your mind, because we're going to hit it over and over as we walk into this passage. So here's a globe, small one. It's actually a puzzle type, so if I drop it, it might break in several pieces. And here's the Word of God. As we approach this passage, as we approach life, <clears throat> we're going to see that there's apparent conflict or a conflict of worldviews. And the worldviews basically come from two realities. We have a fallen world, and it has its own beliefs and axioms that it's going to hold to. And then we have the Word of God. And so, as we walk through this, is the Word of God and the, word, and the world at equal footing? No. Is the world above God's Word? No. But a lot of us think it is. If we're stooped into the world's thoughts, and that's what we believe and embrace, that's all you know, then you think the world is king, and we understand everything from the world's perspective. But the truth of the matter is God made the world. He gave us his word to understand this world that he made and understand him. And so as we walk through this passage and really any passage, we need to understand that the word of God is king and our lives in this world is just, we submit to it and the world uh, as we understand the scriptures in light of it. Does this make sense? So it's going to hit this over and over. And some of us, yes, our toes are going to be a squish. We're not going to like this. This isn't biological or evolutionary or whatever um, view, the view I grew up with. Maybe it was Christian, maybe it's not. But sometimes even our Christian, our, our sort of Christian beliefs are, are messed up too. Because not every church is going by the book. A lot of churches, they, they, they mix it in. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so sometimes you, you've not received a clean education growing up, um, even in the church setting. So some of those things may, be, may need to be refreshed. But right from the very beginning, as we go through Genesis, you'll see this conflict at place. And I'm just going to highlight them as we go. I'm not saying I'm going to hit every one of them, but you'll see it come right away. So that's the big thing I want you to see, where and what and who is the authority. I want to say is God in his scripture over this world. And this comes in so many areas, and you'll see it as we go. Um, as we walk into today's <coughs> chapter, we're going to look at four features from, from Genesis 5, and it's going to make it really simple. Four features, and as you look through this, my hope is that this would be for God's glory, and for our good, our own sanctification. So we're going to look at the gift of life, the curse of death, the hope of victory, and the search for rest. And, the, and as we go through all this, you'll see um, this conflict, and I'll highlight it over and over. So feature number one um, is the gift of life in the first couple of verses. What God is doing as he's speaking through Moses in these first two verses, he's reminding where things all began. 
Um, he's reminding mankind of their true origin and of their true design in light of what's, what happens in the rest of this passage. So what was God's original design? And we, he's just going to highlight it briefly in these two verses. We see that God created man's design, or God, by God's design, <coughs> he created man. That's where our design comes from, God himself. And so in verse 1 it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Adam was born on what day, people? Day six. Just hold that in your mind. And it says, when God created man. Did you guys see that? So a couple of big things happen. There's a God, and we believe it's the God of the Bible. It's the Elohim, God in masculine form. And it is God who brah, he created he made man out of nothing. Okay? God spoke and he made everything. And we can have a little activity here, and I could tell everyone you guys speak, speak a lot. And as you do that, create. All right? Let's, let's do this activity. Create something out of your mouth. Come on. Right? You can't do it. Okay? But God, when he speaks, he made the world. We know that in Genesis 1. And he made man. Okay, that's a huge deal. God made man. It didn't say God initiated an evolutionary process. We don't believe in theistic evolution. It didn't say in the beginning that there was a big bang and somehow round planets came out of it and somehow a bunch of amino acids came together and that was you and it grew up in a zoo and now it's you. Okay, it said that God created man. God Create a man. This flies in the face of what? What the world wants to say to us. Scripture clearly says what? God created man. It's a big deal, but I don't know, 99% of your universities say that what? We evolved. And we were this goo, and it walked out of the goo, and it was kind of like a little monkey, and it became an ape, and lived as cavemen, and now it's you. Okay? It's not the truth. Some people believe this. I've grown up in so many churches, or my first pastor, like every kid in the youth ministry were constantly fighting me, like, Gary, no, we evolved. Man, look at my textbook. See this picture? <clears throat> that picture is a picture. It's a drawing. There's no scientific nothing in there because it comes from the world. So maybe ton of, nine of your ten toes might be broken by now. I don't know. Biblical anthropology affirms that God created man in his image. Adam is the head of mankind. He's the first representative. He's the federal head. And he didn't evolve. He was made a man in adult form from the beginning. Adam wasn't a baby and had to grow up. He was literally made a man. Full functioning man. In what sense was he made a man? Well, the second point we see in this verse is that God created man displaying God's likeness. It says he made him, God made him in the likeness of God. Human beings, we have and share the communicable attributes of God, like love, like kindness, like mercy, like generosity. These are things that are true about God, and we are called to reflect him and display him. Okay? 
we're not made in the likeness of a gorilla. It doesn't say that here. We're made in the likeness of God. The world says what? We're made in the likeness of the gorilla, okay? Or the amino acids. I don't know. Whatever, whatever the world wants to say. It's not true. It says clearly we're made in the likeness of God. <clears throat> Next verse, verse 2. God created man distinctly, male and female. He created them. Nothing else, okay? Today the world's going to say you could choose your own gender. You could have two genders or three genders or blender genders or you have gender confusion. No, God made two genders according to his word. It sounds like this is like, it should be obvious, but this is a big confusion. We think we could vote and choose our, our gender. We think we what? We go to the doctors and amputate or add on to our, our gender, right? It's just where our world is. It's so fallen that they think they're God and could create other genders. No, the Bible literally says two genders, male and female. That's it. That's it. There's no variation. There's no A, B, C, D, E, F, G that comes after the gender. It's just male and female. And then God, after he made and created them, he blessed them. He blessed Adam and Eve. God chose to bless Adam and Eve. His very own creation, he shows favor, divine favor. And specifically, he blesses them to have dominion and authority over the world and also to be fruitful and to multiply, as we know from Genesis 1. And we also see that God named, named them with dignity. Could you imagine being nameless? Think about it. No name. Hi, no name. There's no dignity in no, being no name and having no designation. But with a name... Grant him for God grants dignity, worth, and value. All right? This is a big deal. There's no room here for evolutionary process, my friends. Um, this is a beautiful, glorious start for mankind because of what God did. And then what? It comes crashing down really, really fast. All right? Um, I don't know where you're at with this, but I'm not, I want you guys to see the scriptures for what it is and what it says. And if we need to talk about it, let's talk about it. Okay? There is a lot of sound reasoning. This is not hocus pocus. It's not this weird Christian thing that comes out of a box and I'm just shoving it down your throat. This is God's origin and there's a rational understanding for all this and we can unpack it more. I could point you to more websites. Some guys make it their career to champion biblical creation. And I'll throw out names like Ken Ham. If you want to go to a creation institute and we make a field trip to Kentucky, we can do that. And it debunks everything that the universities are saying. Not just the universities. It's in your, it's in your private schools. It's in your public schools. And it's not the truth. It's a lie. Um, and we'll look at that more later. So next, moving on, <clears throat> the gift of life. Um, and then we see the curse of death. We know that God wasn't lying to Adam and Eve. If you would sin and eat of this forbidden fruit, um, you will surely die. So every person, is, in one sense, is born to die. And we know that Adam is a sinner, 
And now he has a nature of sin, and he's going to be the initiator of multiple generations of people who are impacted with the effects of sin. That includes the fallenness, the lostness, and brokenness, brokenness in this world, and the death that everyone will face. Everyone will face. And so, if you look at me with, <coughs> in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, think about it, 13 decades, he fathered a son in his own likeness. And after him, he named him Seth. What kind of likeness did Adam have? Yes, he had and bore the image of God, but he also had a likeness that was tented and bent and contaminated in sin. And we know this from Romans 5:12 too. It says, therefore, though as through one man sin entered into the world and sin through death, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So, as Adam had his first child, Seth, guess what? Seth inherited sin from his dad and his mom. Um, A.W. Pink puts it this way, By sin, Adam lost the image of God. I often say the image of God has been broken or shattered in Adam. <clears throat> but going on, Pink says this, And become corrupt in his nature, and a fallen parent couldn't do no more than beget a fallen child. Seth was begotten in the likeness of a sinful father, in this case, Adam. So basically all of humanity is born with sin, in sin, and with a sin nature. So just kind of imagine with me, as, as we read through this passage, I'm just going to read through this next section. People are being born... And when you live that long, you can have a lot of kids and a lot of civilizations and a lot of development, but you also have a lot of sinners running around, right? You have a lot of sinners running around. And that's what's happening in these next 10 or 12 verses. So <clears throat> in verse 4, just track with me. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. So there's a lot of having sons and daughters here. Verse 5. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Just think about this. I've lived, I don't know, you take my age, 49 years old, how many presidents that have been around, how many Olympics have come around. Think if the Olympics were around and you lived 900 years. Like, yeah, that's a lot of Olympics. That's a lot of presidents that cycled through. This is a lot of time to live life. Like, I think I have a lot of memories the last 30, 40 years, but like 900 years of memories. <laughs> you know, what happened in year 100, or year 500, year 700, just so much. But we see in verse 5 <clears throat> that Adam died. This is the first natural death, okay? The first unnatural death was what? When Cain killed Abel, right? That's, that's called murder. But that was a natural death. Um, someone intentionally killed Abel. And that was Cain. Verse 6. When Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enoch. It's interesting. When we have kids, we think, okay, we get married, have kids two, three, five years later. 
I'm not sure when Seth got married, but he waited uh, 105 years to have Enoch. And we'll see that later on. A lot of them wait even longer. But it's a long time before starting a family. Verse 7, Seth lived after he fathered Enush, or Nush, at 107 years, and they had other sons and daughters. So you can see it continue to multiply and expand. Verse 8, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died a normal death because of sin. That's a consequence of sin. Verse 9, and Enosh lived, <coughs> had lived 90 years and fathered Kenan. And Enosh lived and fathered uh, Kenan at 815 years, and they had what? Sons and daughters. N nothing else. They didn't have a whole evolutionary process. They, they simply had sons and daughters. They didn't have people of different genders. They had sons and daughters. That was it. I mean, that, that little statement conflicts with our world today. It's, it's so interesting. Verse 11, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. I believe this person was Hawaiian. Just kidding. It just sounds like that because um, I remember a lot of that word in Hawaii, something that sounds like that. But anyways, in verse 13, Kenan lived and fathered <coughs> Mahalel at 840 years, and they had what? Sons and daughters, other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan, <coughs> Kenan were 910 years, and what? He died a normal death. When, when Mahalel lived 65 years, he didn't live that long. He fathered, he didn't live that long to the point he fathered his first child here, uh, Jared. And then verse 16, Mahalel lived after <coughs> and fathered Jared at 830 years. And guess what? They had sons and daughters, not something else. They had normal sons and daughters. Verse 17, all the days of Mahalel were 895 days, and then he died and when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Verse 19, Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years. And guess what? Four sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Jared were 962 years. And he died. So I want you to see that up to this point, the normal pattern is that these Men that were born, they were heads of their families. They were part of multiple generations, and they all lived, got married, it's assumed, and they had sons and daughters, lots and lots of kids, and they all what? Died. But this is going to change, okay? It's going to change pretty soon, and we'll look at that. But up to this point, what the Scripture says is very true. For the wages of sin is death, Everyone will face death. The rich, the poor, the people in the urban areas or the countries. Everyone will face death one day. And we see that after many generations of being fruitful and multiplying. So one question that comes up all the time um, as we read this, because we go, you know, nowadays we only live 70 years, 80 years. Maybe you look at the news sometimes, they talk about someone who lived like 115 years, 117 years is what I saw once. 
And so a couple, I just want to touch this on this a little bit. How do people live so long? And I'm going to lean on John and John for their thoughts. I mean, I have my thoughts, and they're pretty much similar to these, but they, they say it nicely. So MacArthur puts it this way. He says, these are literal markings of unusual life, <laughs> lengths of life are encountered for those by the pre-flood environment provided by the earth being under uh, water, a canopy of water, filtering the ultraviolet rays of the sun and producing a much more moderate and healthful condition. In other words, basically saying before the flood, before the whole world changed, they're in a climate and atmosphere that allowed life to live a lot longer and wasn't contaminated by ultraviolet rays and other things that causes us to age. So that's one, one plausible reason. Um, we don't know 100%, and this reason resonates to a certain degree. Um, others have put out some other reasons, but you could have fun looking those up online if you'd like. Um, <clears throat> another reason why humans uh, live so long, this is from John Piper, this is a longer quote, but I've considered this one over the years and thought about it, and you could just track along and Take this on for your own edification. He says this. Let me prep my mouth. Now, as far as I can see, the Bible does not state explicitly why God would ordain that the early mankind would live so long. Do we see that in Scripture? A change, a reason why? I, I don't think I've ever seen it. Some of you guys are reading the Bible over and over and over. Maybe you've seen it, but I have not seen a specific time where it says, hey, the lifespans are supposed to change. So going on, John Piper goes on and says, but I think if we ponder what the Bible says about why our lives are so short, the other perspective, we will get a clue as to why the early generations live so long. We know from the story of the creation of Genesis 1 to 3 and in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, which we quoted verse 12 earlier, when we know sin entered the world through one man, we know this, that death was not intended to be part of the perfect world before sin entered, entered into the world. And with it, death, death was threatened by God as a penalty for disobedience in the garden. So my, my suggestion is that God granted those long lives so that we looking back, could see from which we have fallen. In other words, those long lives testify that death was not part of the perfect creation. God ordains as a lesson to us that the force of life, force of life be preserved by hundreds of years in a very long lives in those early centuries to show that life, not death, was his design and our portion in creation at the beginning. So the long lives of those first humans stand as a testimony of how utterly short our lives are and how God's design at the beginning and his design in the future is life, indeed eternal life. So what is this all saying? God's perspective for Plan, for, plan A for humanity was to what? Live eternally. But because of sin it, and the effects of sin, it, it has shortened to the point it is today. But these earlier years, 
started at the basis of, yeah, it's infinity, it's eternity level. So they live 500, 800, 900 years. The cool thing is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ reverses the curse of mortality and opens the door of eternal life for all who believe. Yes, my friends, that is very encouraging to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ reverses the curse. And so we'll look at this more, but we can hold that in, in that place. So what do we see up to this point? People live, people had kids, and people died. Verse 21 to 23 is something different, and we have the hope of victory here. <clears throat> Enoch is a shining star in the midst of many generations of darkness, right? We have Enoch, seventh from Noah, and what does the Bible say about Enoch? It's fascinating here. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after his father Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. These are literal years, 365 days in these years, not eons, not trillions of billion years. These are normal calendar years. Verse 24, Enoch, it says that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. What's different at this point? Enoch did not, he didn't die. It says that God took him. My friends, we got to park this as we go down this journey of, of hundreds of years up to this point. Not thousands, just hundreds up to this point. This is God's amazing grace. For this person, Enoch, though with a sin nature, did not die on earth, did not die a natural death. God took him without having passed through the normal course of life and dying. Okay? I want you to know, when I think of my life, I don't know how you think of your life, the one thing I do worry about a little bit is not going to heaven, it's just the whole dying process. Like, I would like to have like a massive heart attack and just die quickly. This slow, long, prolonged dying process, especially at the end, ooh, it doesn't sound good. So there's an option for us, and we'll look at it, and it's similar to Enoch's. But I want you to see this. Um, Enoch did not die. He's one of two people that did not die and went to heaven. Who's the other one? Talk to me. Elijah, he went on a chariot to heaven. Uh, <clears throat> so they both had free rides to heaven before they died. And for both of these men, they did not have a funeral. No funeral, no memorial, no obituary. Well, maybe they can make a different kind of obituary. But the Bible clearly says they did not die. We see in verse 20 and 24, twice in three verses, it says that Enoch walked with God. That's unique because everyone else in these several hundred years up to this point, majority of them were falling and going down with their generation, but Enoch stood out as a light and he daily communed with God. He walked with God in obedience to God. He was faithful to God. He prayed to God. He listened to God. He obeyed God. What's the, the most fashionable day, I think, for Christians today is that we say we know God, but we don't obey God. 
we know discipleship, but we don't make disciples. We know evangelism, but we don't make, we don't make converts, if that's the best word. We know to love one another in our mind, but do we love one another? But truly, Enoch was different. He just didn't know what God wanted. He actually obeyed him in these areas. <coughs> so, could you imagine if Enoch was your accountability partner? And you're asking, like, how's your prayer life? How faithful are you in these areas of life? And Enoch responds, well, I've communed with God for 300 years. I've been walking with him for 300 years. You know, I'm just really tight with God. And you're like, oh, man, I've only been walking with God for three years. <laughs> or, or maybe 30 years. But he's like 300 years. And he's not even boasting or bragging about that. Is this what he did? He walked with God. How faithful was God? This is the part that stood out to me the most. In, in a world facing false teachers and lies, guess what? That's our world today. We live in a world of false teachers and lies. We have lies on TVs, lies in our textbooks, lies everywhere. But do we stand up to the lies of this world? Hmm? Or do we bow down and let the world get louder and louder and louder? I want you to see what Enoch did in Jude chapter four, chapter Jude verse fourteen and fifteen. Okay, um, verse fourteen, and it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied and preached, saying, "Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones," referring to angels, to what execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that, <clears throat> that they have commanded in such, committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what did Enoch do? He preached. And he didn't say, hey, you are a sinner because you live this way and you do these things, and he left it at that. No, the intent of calling out the ungodly and the ungodliness that is being, being lived out, he does so, listen carefully. Sometimes we're like, oh yeah, that guy is a smoker, a drinker, and we make fun of the fact that he smoked drink. But this is not his mindset at all. He preaches because he has a conviction about what is true and right, he has a conviction that his life is lived before God and he's called to be faithful. But I think the part that stands out to me the most of why he spoke, I believe he simply cared for people's souls. And though that they were sinners, he knew that God would one day judge them. He did so to warn them to repent and turn to God before it was too late. It's the most kind and compassionate thing you could do is tell people about Jesus before they die. And the reason we don't tell people is what? We're maybe not as kind or as caring, as compassionate as we think. That's pretty harsh. But Enoch is the only person doing this. He's the only one that cares enough. He's the only one living before God in such a way that he's willing to speak up in this way. Can we escape this world without dying? Talk to me. Some people are saying, no, come on, ladies, you guys have read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What happens there? 
you jump so high, you don't come down. It's called a rapture, all right? All right? You don't really jump. But when Christ returns and you're in Christ, guess what? You can be raptured. You can go to heaven without dying. That's theology, true? Yes? I don't know. Do we believe our Bible? I saw a lot of heads nodding, yes, no, we can't go to heaven without dying, or with dying, whatever you say, whatever I'm trying to say there. You can go to heaven without dying if you're raptured when Christ returns. Does that make sense? Okay? The dead in Christ will also go, for sure. So if you want to know about the rapture, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and also 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It is possible to go to heaven like Enoch, and sort of like Elijah. So, number four, the gift of life, the curse of death, the hope of victory. <clears throat> now we'll see the search for rest. This is very fascinating too. Verse 25, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah had lived and fathered Lamech at 782 years, and guess what? Had aliens. No, had sons and daughters. All right? I just want to know if you guys are paying attention to your Bible. Verse 27, thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. He's the oldest man to ever live. So if you like trivia, there you go. There's your trivia answer for the person who lived the longest. But like everyone else, he died. Um, same pattern as before. And so the pattern was broken with Enoch. Now it's back to dying. And now we see it's going to change again. Verse 28, and when um, Lamech had lived 182 years, he had fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, quote, out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief or, or rest from our work and from the painful toils, toil of our hands. Basically, all of humanity has kind of lived out the curse that God granted to man, and they worked and toiled in the land, but guess what? This one, this chosen one, Noah, would come to bring rest and relief. <clears throat> what do we know about Noah's name? Actually, if you go in the Bible, each one of these guys have a unique name that's unique to them. But for Noah's case, his name meant rest or comfort. <clears throat> the Hebrew digs in it a little deeper. It has the idea of breathe again or to catch your breath. So I kind of see it this way. All the humanity is chugging, running, 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 running. And it's been hard. It's been difficult. It's been painful. We've seen people die. We're grinding out life. And Noah comes along. And we have a bunch of humanity that's sinning and bringing corruption over over years, generation after generation, and they die. And here comes Noah, and he's going to allow us to what? Catch our breath, have rest and relief. So what do we see here? <coughs> Excuse me. As If we look further down in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we see that Noah was a righteous man, a blameless man, a man who walked with God too, a man who found favor in God's eyes, <coughs> in a pool of humanity that did not, that remained running a hellbound race. And we see 
that God brought Ad, um, excuse me, Noah here to bring a, fresh, a breath of fresh air. What did this look like? What kind of man was he? What kind of man does God choose to do this, and to bring fresh air? A man like Noah. John MacArthur says this, But God brought Noah along as a breath of fresh air, a righteous man in a what? Unrighteous world. He allowed humanity to catch its breath, even if it was only a small gasp of air, but it was a breath we, <coughs> excuse me, we can be glad for, because if it hadn't been one righteous man, all of humanity would have permanently been destroyed. We know that in the coming chapters. But there was one man who allowed the human race to catch its breath and survive the wretchedness of the... What do you guys have on the screen? Of era one man and his children. That era. Thank you. My, my little notes did a little clip on my notes. I don't know why. But anyways, verse 30. Back to the pattern of living and dying. Now, Lamech lived after his father 595 years and had sons and daughters. Verse 31. And thus all the days of Lamech were 77 years. And he died. Noah and his family, <coughs> verse 32. Uh, after, Noah was, <coughs> after Noah was 500 years, so at age 500 years, lived five centuries, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is the only one that's mentioned to have uh, a line, that the others had a line, but they're just highlighting Shem here. And Shem means a name. And so we see that the sons were born at Noah's age of 500. And when does the flood come? When Noah was 600, right? So there's 100 years there. God tells Noah to build an ark. Everyone thinks he's crazy, but apparently we know that Noah had a wife and his three sons had Wives, too, so there's eight of them, and they have 100 years together to build this ark together, assuming that the kids need to grow up, get to like 12 or 13 before they were able to be a much contribution to this ark building process. Um, <clears throat> they were able to help Noah um, in the season of building an ark. So, there you go. Um, a couple of concluding thoughts. Um, that will fly against this world again. And the first one I want to draw out, if you crunch the numbers from, as this, as this genealogy is traced up to the flood and to Adam plus five days, we see that it adds and crunches to the number of 1,656 years from Adam to the flood, if you add six years, you get the whole time frame of how long the universe and the earth have been around. And if you want how long has Adam been around, well, basically, did you deal with the five or six days there? Do you guys see what's being said here? Up to this point, 1,656 years have taken place. Not billions and trillions and millions and a bunch of mutations to go from goo to monkeys and animals and apes to human beings. 
no evolutionary process, no all this other stuff. None of this could take place in that amount of time. And so if you take the rest of the genealogies to Christ, and then from Christ all the way now, you get about 6,000 years. The universe, the world, and mankind has only been around for 6,000 years if you do the math according to the scriptures. Or you can look at this world and say, hey, even I spent hours upon hours reading about scientists. Even scientists recognize that there's a problem with the Big Bang. They're like, Big Bang doesn't bring order. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And they're like, yeah, something else had to have been behind this Big Bang. But they just don't want to give any glory to God. And so anyways, that's the first thing I want you to, to see. Some theologians and mathematicians have come and crunched the numbers from, this, from the generation of Adam till this point, and they believe that there's 7 billion people, almost as many people as today up at that point. That's fascinating. And that's scary on a, several, on a few different levels. That means when the flood came, a lot of people were mixed up, grounded underneath the world. And so a lot of people died. That's a big-time judgment. But why does this matter? What's the hope here? And the hope that I see is, is Enoch. Enoch is a righteous man living in an unrighteous world. He trusted his God, and he had a hope that allowed him to escape death. That same opportunity where the gospel does reverse the curse of sin is here for us and for everyone that we desire to share the gospel toward is a hope of forgiveness of sin, the hope of glory. And if you're living when Christ returns, and if you believe in the rapture, a free ticket home without dying. My friends, as I think about Enoch, my question for you and I, do we dare live our Christian life to this degree, to this way, to stand up, and face a generation of unrighteousness and speak against the sin and ungodliness? Or are we like most generations? We live, we're born, we eat, we do life, and then we die and we go straight to hell. Or in this course of time, will we break the generational mode? There's so many things I'm thinking about. I mean, you could trace a normal timeline of generations in all my life, right? For me, it goes to Mr. Lee, my dad. <laughs> Before my dad was what? Mr. Lee, too, my grandfather. And it goes back, and you could trace it back, I don't know how many hundreds of years, to some maybe Lee dynasty in China. It goes back maybe 2,000 years. I don't know, 3,000 years. <clears throat> but all I know is that I am the first Christian in my family. Somehow, by God's grace, he's like, I just decided to make Gary the first Christian in my family. So as a first I decided to say, I'm going to tell my brothers and sisters about Jesus. I'm going to pray for my grandparents. Well, I saw my grandma come to Christ. My brother come to Christ. My come to Christ. I seen my auntie and uncle come to Christ in my short, tiny little lifetime. And being the first Christian in your generation doesn't mean uh, <clears throat> that's how we break a generation. But for me, it was one. But every one of us has an opportunity to be a generation breaker. Uh, so I wrote two words there. You could be a generation goner and just live out your generation and then die. Or you could be a generation gap man. 
You can stand in the gap of your generation and say, hey, I'm going to live differently, like Jesus in his likeness, and stand and speak against and raise my family differently and build a church according to God's word and seek to live a legacy. You don't want to see your life as a flash in the pan and done. You want to live life intentionally, deliberately for God's glory. And so this think hard, what does it look like to do that? To live a life that grants a legacy, a heritage that goes upstream instead of what? Downstream. That will fight against injustice. Fight against all the lies that are being put out as truth in our systems out there that supposedly are educating us with lies upon lies upon lies upon lies. And they know they're lies, but they don't remove that stuff from the schools. Even the non-believers know they're lies. They know that it doesn't even agree with their scientific laws and hypothesis, etc. And lastly, Noah is the one who tells of a new day, a new future, a new hope that would come after judgment. Guess what? In light of this side of the gospel, we have the same opportunity for those in Christ will escape judgment and we will become a new creation, but God will set up a new world. And that's God's glorious new earth, new heavens, new earth. And so... Might we consider what it looks like to live for an audience of one when it's not popular and it's not cool and maybe not many people are with you? Or what does it look like to come along closely with each other and be accountable to each other before God and run this race? Not the hellbound race, but the race for Christ Jesus to the end. All right. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to think about generations. And we see a generation that went pretty south, very south. And God, we pray, Lord, that in this room, that there will be a generation that will stand the gap for you, that will run this race and hold your gospel forth and recognize that all the pain that we might suffer for living for you is worth it for future gain. Help us to have this reality, this picture of the gospel that many have embraced over the years. The gain of glory far outweighs the pain that you may experience in this life to run this race. Lord, chisel, shape, mold us into the image of Christ. Help us, church, to fight being pushed into the mold of this world and adapting those beliefs, but help us to believe in your Son who died, who was buried, and rose again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.